For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all this morning and to be introducing Joan Emerald, our guest speaker today. So Joan is a uh, teacher in the Suzuki Roshi lineage, our lineage, and Joan is the teacher at the uh, Zen Center North Shore uh, north of Boston, um, she's um, well. She's uh, as she says, she's explore, explores connection between zazen, social justice, self care, and creativity. And she is a very creative person and a former dancer, or maybe still a dancer, of course. Um, Joan is a successor of uh, Blanche Hartman. Uh, Blanche and Lou Hartman um, now passed were amongst my greatest friends at San Francisco Zen Center, I was uh, Blanche's first Chuseau at Tassajara. Um, Blanche was um, the, the uh, robe sewing teacher at, uh, the main sewing teacher at San Francisco Zen Center, and uh, just a delightful person. So uh, I'm glad to have Joan here. Um, also, um, Joan is, uh, Jones has uh, uh, gone ahead of us in having to uh, close her formal uh, practice place uh, in Massachusetts. So uh, we will be, uh, uh, well, we haven't occupied our Zendo on uh, Irving Park Road since uh, March, but we will be closing it formally at the end of the year. And there's at least a half a dozen other uh, Zendos who've, uh, who've done the same. So um, she has, uh, she's pioneering ahead of us, but uh, we continue uh, our strong Zen Zendo. Anyway, Joan, uh, thank you for coming and speaking to us this morning. Thank you so much. Take it away. You're welcome, Tygen. Thank you. Can everybody hear me okay? Yep. All right. Okay, let's pray to the internet gods that they sustain us. <laughs> at least for the next hour or so. I think we go for about 45 minutes. Is that correct? Including some time for conversation? Uh, there's some time for conversation after that too. Okay, cool. Great. Well, I am thrilled to be here. And um, I, uh, you know, here. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be in Chicago with you this morning. <laughs> um, just for, you know, 
to uh, prevent further disembodiment, I like to say where I am. Yes, Tigan, thank you. I am on the North Shore of Boston in Massachusetts. Um, it's 11.14 my time. We've had our Zendo sat this morning. And so we've already kind of been through that. I've been on Zoom for a while, bringing forth the Dharma with shining beings. Um, and I'm so happy to continue to do this today with you in a different time zone. Um, it is a warm day. We are in the midst of a drought here. Um, not as bad as California. We have, we do have our first climate fire that I know of this year up in the White Mountains. Um, we had smoky skies last week, feeling the solidarity with our Dharma brothers and sisters and all beings on the West Coast. Um, yeah, we're all in it. We're all feeling it. Um, the, there's deciduous trees outside my window, and they are just starting to turn golden. They're still a pretty deep green right now. So that's where I am. And also, in addition, I'd like to say um, on Namkeg and Agawam land, those are the two groups we know of. The Massachusetts tribe could have been in the area as well, uh, but we're still exploring that to see if we can find um, connection to all the First Nation people who were here before us. Um, and I just, I want to say thank you to Tigan. I have you, I've been thinking about you, of course, today, and I just have so much appreciation for you as a human being, as a Zen teacher, as a leader of a Sangha. You know, you all may know this, I guess Tigan's like this with you, but at least when I've seen him at national conferences, he's very emotional. And I feel that's extremely important in the Zen world that we show some emotion, that what we're feeling, we manifest. This is a, kind of foundationally what I want to talk about this morning with you, what I want to share with you. Um, so I appreciate that example, Tigan, of staying close to what you're feeling and letting us see that, letting us see how you're working with it and where it comes from. Um, and I also want to acknowledge Hogetsu. Hi, Lori. <laughs> Dharma's sister, who's uh, a beloved part of the Sangha of Zen Center North Shore, who comes to help us every year with sewing, and also to share her own inquiry. We love her very much, and we will be blessed with her in the next couple weeks. She's coming back to do some sewing again as a new crop of bodhisattvas, so Xeroxus. So it's good to be with you. Some people I know from uh, encounters, Paula, hi Paula. Um, there may be Paul Disco, the famous Paul Disco. Hi Paul, we've never met, but I know you, you don't know me. <laughs> Thank you. We've had um, encounters in the last couple of weeks with Suzuki Roshi elders. And Paul, I put you right there in that pantheon. Ed Brown was with us last weekend. And um, Ed is another uh, teacher, practitioner, who I really appreciate, shows us emotion, lets us, gives us permission, open the, opens the door for us also 
uh, to be precisely with what we're feeling. Uh, so Tygen asked me, you know, what's the name of this talk? And I said, I didn't know. And he said, oh, just give me a title. And I said, well, how about uprooting the status quo? It seems to be my kind of favorite topic. I think, Tygen, you said something like, oh, that's classic Joan Amaral. <laughs> and I want to tell all of you that classic, I also believe that this uprooting the status quo, this is not going to be a talk on politics. So for those of you who are starting to cringe, do not press your leave button. <laughs> Stay. Because for me, this uprooting the status quo is precisely what we are doing in our practice of zazen. Sitting on our cushions. You know, Tygen mentioned I was a dancer. I was a modern dancer. I was a choreographer. There's a creative process there. It's not representational dance. It's um, lived trying to uh, share, manifest, make contact with a lived experience. Um, Something fresh and vibrant, not imitative. And so this pretty quickly becomes radical, you know, becomes um, challenging usual ways of seeing things. I'm thinking of someone I partnered with as a dancer way back when in San Francisco in the 90s. He was an abstract expressionist painter. And the way he knew when a painting was done, how he knew that was he would take his canvas and he would turn it upside down. And that's how he could feel whether or not he was finished, that the work was finished in this particular piece. And I I think about that in the process that we're engaged with in Zazen, kind of turning things upside down, having a fresh look at things that we thought we knew, what we thought was true, kind of in doing this over and over again. So taking a a step back here, status quo, what is status quo? Um, So as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, the status quo for me is about being half dead, half alive, half dead. Not really engaging fully with whatever happens to be happening right now, right here. The opposite of status quo for me is engaging with this fresh new moment as a fresh new moment. And so that implies that I may not know exactly what's happening here. You know, and and in the context of racial justice work, for instance, and, you know, let me just say that we will definitely make time for conversation because there may be some things that I'm going to say today that you have a problem with. 
And I, what I really hope is that we can engage. <laughs> we can talk about it. Um, yeah. Because I'm not trying to convince you of anything. You know, what's a Dharma talk? Well, Tigan, thank you for inviting me to come. Because for me, a Dharma talk, um, especially in this age of so much disembodiment, ironically, mm-hmm. it's a time when we can do an energy exchange. You know, like it would be a lot more difficult for me to come to Chicago to give a talk. And maybe for Tigan to ask me to come to give a talk. Because then you'd have to house me and you you might have to feed me. and You know, it gets really complicated. But these days, there's much more of a possibility virtually to have different points of view, to have different Dharma teachers come, to have different types of conversations. So this is a real opportunity. Um, and I value that opportunity. And so then... But a Dharma talk, regardless of the Zoom situation, I just want you to know where I come from. I understand a Dharma talk to be about encouragement. Foundationally, what I would like to do is to encourage you to keep sitting. <laughs> to keep sitting Sazen. That's basically all I'm saying. <laughs> um, to just keep sitting. And maybe, to ask ourselves, what does this mean to keep sitting? Because Lord knows, Buddha knows, we don't want to end up as fundamentalists, that we just keep sitting because that's what Jones said, or that's what Tigan said, or that's what Dogen said. You know, what's important in this keep sitting is, what is this keep sitting? But I'm not asking you that question from here. It's not an intellectual question. It's an embodied question. So by the way, when people ask me if I'm still dancing, I say yes. <laughs> it's called Sazen. <laughs> it's a subtle dance. <laughs> it's the dance of um, discipline. You know, I didn't come to Zen practice because I wanted to be a nun. I didn't come to Zen practice because I was looking for religion. I didn't think that was the case at the time. For me, what we're doing is religion. This is religious practice. But this religion I feel we're practicing has nothing to do with fundamentalism. It has nothing to do with dogma. But we could easily fall into that if we just keep sitting because that's what we're told to do without ever inquiring as to what that means. So... I started to tell you a minute ago about racial justice work in the context of meeting this fresh moment, which implies vulnerability, not knowing, you know, not sure, but there. I get the sense from my own experience and what I've, I've observed among white people, those of us who identify as white, I identify as white, that it's really hard to shake control, (laughs) needing to control, like needing to know, needing to understand, needing to read all the books I possibly can on racism and anti-racism before 
I start to show up to protest or I start to give a talk on race and Dharma or anti-racism and Zazen. We can't afford to wait until the day may come that we know really what we're talking about. I think that the practice of Zazen, the process of Zazen, this practice of taking our seat and opening, grounding ourselves in the present moment and opening to the present moment and moving from there in our stillness is so helpful in this work of racial justice or any justice. Because I think, especially for us white people, it's training us in trusting not being in control and being there anyway. Trusting our vulnerability that includes our strength and our wisdom, even though we may not be cognizing it, cognizing it as such. So, um, how do we enact this um, disrupting or uprooting the status quo in our formal practice? Because actually, I don't mean to stress you guys out this morning. I really don't. I'm Even as I'm encouraging you, one of the things I'm encouraging you and me, myself, to do is to stretch a little. As one of my teachers said, Darlene Cohen. <laughs> nice exhale, Tygen, thank you. Thank you for that dragon roar. <laughs> my teacher said, in our practice, this is Darlene Cohen, open your arms wider, open your arms wide, and then wider, you know, wider than you thought you possibly could bear. Learning to get comfortable with all the ways that we're uncomfortable learning to settle into, you know, whatever you want to call it, vulnerability, not knowing, not being in control, the truth of impermanence, the truth of connectedness, the value of relationship, of sangha, because that's where healing happens in relationship. So let's settle into relationship. Let's settle into relationship with our own body mind. Let's settle into relationship with the Sangha, the Maha Sangha of all beings, not just human, but all beings. Let's settle into relationship with the earth body. And so in our formal practice on our cushion, I've said, you know, Zazen itself, I feel is this practice of, of, challenging the status quo just in the very activity if you've noticed of sitting just that alone what's that famous book sylvia borstein don't just do something sit there i mean this is like countercultural for us to to just sit to not produce or consume anything except maybe thoughts and maybe oxygen co2 This just sitting in shikantaza of just opening and receiving this moment. Valuing this moment. 
and valuing the everything that this moment contains, which is everything. And then as I was referring to a little bit earlier, for those of you who have been sitting for a while, you know, maybe a little tune-up here, (laughs) a little kind of attitudinal tune-up. Like, what do we think is happening here in Sazen? Because I think it is true. In the Soto school, the shadow here is in this just sitting without doing koan practice or, you know, reciting a mantra, doing some kind of imagery, doing something. The shadow is that we might confuse our practice of stillness with complacency, stagnation. And so in all seriousness, this is why I say that this is how I'm still dancing. This stillness of which we speak does not mean lack of movement. If you feel like it, if you're inclined in this way, and you, you don't you don't feel like it's too goofy, or even if you do feel like it's too goofy, go ahead, put your hands over your heart. Does that feel still to you? Can you feel the rise and the fall of the fact of your breathing? Can you feel the beating of your heart? How is that still? How is that not moving? You can keep your hands right there if you'd like. You can drop them down to your belly if you want to stay connected here with the movements of your body. Maybe you want to feel, maybe you can feel in your belly the rise and the fall of each cycle of breathing. The stillness, I believe, we're talking about is more the stillness of non-distraction, of precisely noticing what's happening right here and not turning away. Seeing it, feeling it, experiencing it, naming it, telling the truth, having the courage to admit when I'm really pissed off right now or I'm deeply in grief or I'm feeling joy, bliss, right in the midst of the world going to hell. (laughs) Yes, there can be joy. Please let there be joy. Find it and enjoy it. But this, so this stillness, I believe, this non-distraction is so that we can experience how moved we actually are by the world, by life, by our life. How moving it is to be alive, to be human. So what is this quality with which we're sitting? What is Zazen for you? How do you sit? Are you in vibrant responsiveness 
to your actual experience, with your actual experience? Or are you passively checked out? Are you trying to be good? (laughs) Trying to be virtuous and not move? (laughs) In which case, you are kind of, you know, muscling your way through the period until the damn bell rings. (laughs) It's good to be moved. Please be moved, even as you are rooted in your cushion. You know, this rooted through the tailbone, connecting with Mother Earth. Even if you're, some of you in Chicago, I'm thinking high rises. This is my view. Maybe some of you are in an apartment in downtown Chicago on the 20th floor. So what? Root through your tailbone, through the 19th, 18th, 17th, 16th floor, (laughs) through the concrete, (laughs) down into the soil below the city of Chicago. Find the earth. Let her receive you. Ground yourself, root yourself, and from that rootedness, breathe into lengthening, extending through the spine, growing up all the way through the spine, the base of the head, the neck, through the skull, and out the top of the head, the crown chakra, the crown of the head. In doing so, this kind of contemplation is not, you know, I understand our way of contemplation is not this. This is a beautiful posture of contemplation in some traditions. I don't understand that's our tradition. I understand our tradition to be right here, fearlessly. You know, there's fight, freeze, Um, There are others. Some people say, um, what do they say? Fight, freeze. Well, the, 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 um, there's fight or flight. Yeah, that's right. Fight, freeze. Uh, No, (laughs) fight, flight. Anyway, there's a third alternative that, that for me, Sazen is, which is face. We're not fighting, you know, we're not fleeing. And please, because that freeze one, we could, confu- we could confuse. We could confuse this face that I'm pointing to as Zazen with freezing, that we kind of go numb. And that's why I talked quite a bit at the beginning when I was um, praising Tigen and praising Ed Brown about emotion, about feeling. Like for me, there's some way in which Zazen the coolness of zazen, this noble, upright posture, is a container that allows us precisely to let it rip. It's what we call safe space. But please, white people, we're not creating safe space just to feel safe. We're creating safe space in order to feel safe enough to be brave to take chances, to extend ourselves into places where we didn't think we could go, or maybe we haven't been encouraged to go. 
So in the Zazen posture, this is a posture of great courage, training ourselves to face what's before us, what's within us, and not move. But again, this not moving is not this frozen state. This not moving is the container, this noble container of non-distraction. There's tons going on. There's a story. I'm going to bring in someone to back me up. Oh, Suzuki Roshi. (laughs) There's this wonderful story of um, Hoitsu, his son, who was in town at City Center, San Francisco Zen Center. Tig and you, I'm sure, were there for that weekend where there was, what was it? Was it the 50th anniversary? Something big was happening. And all these dignitaries were in town. And Hoitsu was taking a group of these dignitaries on a tour of the city center building. And he stopped at the portrait of his father, you know, that's in the lobby of San Francisco Zen Center. The portrait, I think Mike Dixon, Trudy Dixon's husband, painted it of Suzuki Roshi and Zazen posture. And Huitsu, bless his heart, he stopped. He looked up at his father and he said, huh, he looks so peaceful. Nobody knew the volcano that was inside. Mm. You know, and then there's, you know, Hoitsu has been, been pretty open and candid with his experience of his dad and, and the difficulties in their family, what they went through. You know, and again, just like with Ed Brown, these are such important teachings for us. We are human. We are capable you know, equally of cruelty and kindness, every single one of us. The, the difference, I think, you know, in this, in our way, in the Bodhisattva way, is how do we work with the cruel one here? How do we work with the cruel one there? You know, with more othering or with some deep kind of compassion, solidarity, So off the cushion, this practice of uprooting or dissolving, challenging the status quo, off the cushion, how are we responding to the cries of our world? And how are we responding to our own cries? How are we responding to our relationships? And this is difficult, but, you know, this, in this teaching and this understanding of our interconnectedness, there is no one with whom we are not in relationship, whether we like it or not. In our city here in Beverly, um, we're doing a lot of work with our, our mayor, our police chief, our human rights committee, the city council around racial justice. And one of the things that's arisen, one of the, the hot topics that's caused a lot of division on the so-called left is how to engage with the police, 
There are some people who, who want to dismantle the police, just defund the police entirely, no more police. There are some people who say, no, we can't have that. We just want to redirect some funds of the police department. There are some people who do not want to engage with the police at all. And there are some people who say, keep your enemy, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. <laughs> we need to stay in relationship with the police. But one thing that someone said recently that I thought was really, really important. And as you may be able to see on our, I don't know if you could see it in this light. We have the Bodhisattva of wisdom and we have the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin and Manjushri at the foot of the Buddha. Sorry, mm. Buddha. <laughs> okay. Um, and I, I think these are really important. That this compassion and wisdom, we need both to fly these two wings of Buddhism. Wisdom without compassion is too cold, too detached. Maybe this sense of detachment that doesn't include understanding that true non-attachment necessarily includes attachment. Mm. Non-attachment is not this across-the-board rejection of attachment. It's an important check into what is attachment. But compassion without wisdom can easily fall into sentimentality. So this question is very good. This person who said, it would be helpful to look at the police to some degree. And if there are police officers here, thank you so much for the work you're doing. And thank you for practicing Zazen. <laughs> um, so, and I'd love to hear from you if there are any law enforcement officers. I'd love to have the chance to talk a little bit more deeply because this is this is not a rejection i, I said to someone earlier in, in the dharma talk this morning in our sangha this is not a rejection of anything at all this is not abandoning anybody and how do we work with our abuser we might say that if we want to be white allies with people of color who have been crying for our help for so long, who have been naming the abuse at the hands of some police officers and in general, the institution of many police departments. How do we deal with the relationship of being in relationship with someone who's an abuser? How do we not fall into codependency? Um, these are very challenging questions, but this is also in the spirit of responding to the cries of the world with wisdom, with compassion, and also without quite knowing, but being there anyway. So for me, this is about engaging in a conversation that's going to be challenging. It's going to feel impossible it's going to be infuriating. And sometimes we might need to check out of it. Sometimes we might need to just go back to being in conversation with ourselves quietly for a while, you know, checking back in, reconnecting with our own moral compass because it gets very confusing very quickly. But again, what I'm talking about this morning is not 
politics, but a vibrant response. Staying connected with a vibrant response to the cries of the world. In other words, Sheila Paramita. How do we live our Bodhisattva vow? And so at the base, this Bodhisattva vow, and I'm only going to go for a couple more minutes. Um, at the base, I think the attitude that's very helpful for us is our Bodhisattva vow. We are so lucky that we have this vow that's impossible. <laughs> We're so lucky because we become freed up in an impossible vow to get stuck on trying to get it right. Again, especially for us white people. <laughs> Let's not fall into that delusion that we're, this is another way that we have to be in control. You know, we have to know what's what in order to try to be of help. We just return to our Bodhisattva vow. Beings are numberless. I still vow to save them. And as Tegan, I think it was John McRae who translated these vows as beings of this mind are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions of this mind, right, are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates of this mind are boundless, but I still vow to find them and enter, to push through, (laughs) to break through, as Kaz Tanahashi would say, to find breakthrough. And Buddha's way of this mind, yes, this hot mess, this mind, Buddha's way of this mind is unsurpassable. But I vow to become it over and over and over again. I vow to make contact with it and to enjoy it because that's what's going to nourish me for the long road ahead. So I think this attitude, this quality of the Bodhisattva vow is so helpful Because we need you to not give up. We need you to keep showing up right in the midst of not knowing. (laughs) And that not knowing is so helpful for the beings with whom you might find it difficult to be in relationship with, the beings you disagree with. Because if you manifest that, that aspect of not knowing, you're less likely to other those people you disagree with. You're less likely to alienate them. And you're more likely to find common ground because we might be surprised about how much we have in common. And I'm not just talking about the fact that we all bleed, breathe, and we're all going to die. You know, I'm talking about other particularities in our, our um, political, social, economic um, disarray nationally. And so I want to I just end by saying, so this book, America's Racial Karma by Dr. Larry Ward, maybe some of you know this, it just came out, An Invitation to Heal is the subtitle. So he is, he's African-American, he's ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh, and this is a blessing. This is... A, a response to our SOS, 
our cry for help. Dr. Ward has come forth with this magnificent book. Um, and I want to share with you one part of it that um, he calls, it's something like calling forth the ancestors. And I feel like, again, for us white people, it's very important for us to ask for help, to know that we don't have all the answers. We don't even have all the questions. We don't even have necessarily the right questions. We need help asking the right questions. Um, But we're used to doing this in the Zen school of invoking our ancestors. It's so helpful for us. It gives us so much confidence to know that we're not alone and that we're not making this up, that we're part of a lineage, that we have some place where we belong, some place that makes sense to us. You know, every time we invoke Ryaku Fusatsu, the monthly uh, Bodhisattva full moon ceremony, where we realign with our deepest wish to be happy, peaceful, and free, we invoke the Bodhisattva precepts. First of all, have you noticed? We lay out how bad it is. We say, all my ancient twisted karma. <laughs> we, we engage in the purification of our body-mind. And then we ask for help. After doing that, we ask for help. We pay homage to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas. And in our, in our Sangha, we also once a week, and it happens to be on Sundays this morning, um, chant Dogen Zenji's Ehe Koso Hotsukanmon, which is also us asking for help from the ancestors. And um, placing ourselves right alongside the ancestors. They were as we, just as deluded as we are. And we in the future can be just like them. That's so helpful. That's so encouraging. It's so comforting. And so here's what Dr. Ward says. I'm going to read for a little bit, and I'm going to let him have the last word. Please listen. We must understand our sorrow. We must understand our sorrow at this time as divine energy and not simply as the result of political error. The gate of ancestral grief is being flooded in all of us. Only by practicing and acting well now can we heal our ancestral trauma and become ancestors worthy of being descended from in the future. We recognize our interconnectedness with our collective body as Americans. I am a drop in the ocean, but I'm also the ocean. I'm a drop in America, but I'm also America. Every pain, every confusion, every good, every bad, and every ugly of America is in me. As I transform myself and heal and take care of myself, I'm very conscious that I'm healing and transforming and taking care of America. So my spiritual practice is to help me deal with the disappointment, the frustration, the fatigue, the anxiety, the overwhelm, the panic, and the hypervigilance that come with living in the United States and being part of its collective insanity. My experience has been that every time I leave the country for more than a week and come back, I'm re-traumatized. I wish I wasn't, but I am. 
And so I'm happier to be in the cradle of the mountains who don't know my name or care, who don't know my race or care, or the magpies that I can talk to, or the birds that I sing with in the morning, or the wind that blows through without any name, any classification, any category, and I'm held up like you are by the natural world. Dr. Ward. All right, I'm Mediterranean. I, I just, one more thing. I just want to share with you a personal anecdote about this, about, you know, tying all the work you're doing to um, bring awareness to how, how much harm we're causing to Mother Earth. You know? And how helpful she is, how helpful it is to go into the mountains, to go into the forest every day for uh, many months now, pretty much every day. I've gone to this place called Ravenswood in, um, near my town. And it's so healing. It's these trails. You can, you can be there for an hour or two, and it gets so quiet, and it's just the birds, and it's the trees. And I watch... You know, the deciduous trees drop their leaves after turning golden. And then you can see more sky because it's just bare trees. And then in the spring, the leaves come back so generously, so faithfully. They come back bright green. And it's just such a healing, comforting place to go to reconnect with, with sanity and goodness on planet Earth. And so I've taken up this practice of bringing as many people of color, black people, who I'm working with, who we're part, we're, we're collaborating on protests and vigils and me, endless meetings with the mayor and the city council. And I want to bring them there because these are places where they don't necessarily feel welcome. And then there's also the aspect, and if there are black people on this call, forgive me for speaking on your behalf. Some of my friends who are black have shared that it's a new relationship for them to have with the woods because their prior associations with the woods are lynchings of their people from trees. So there's so much unspeakable pain and there is so much healing of which I would like to speak. And here's one anecdote from yesterday. Um, I was walking with a woman who's black and her daughter who's about 10 and I love to see how people respond as soon as they enter these woods. It's just it's exciting. And it's like, oh, yes, it's so delicious and nourishing. And we became playful and just happy. And toward the end of the walk, we came to this place where someone had put up Tibetan prayer flags just a few days ago. They did this. And it caught the eye of the little girl. And she said, oh, what's that? And I said, well, those are Tibetan prayer flags. And we went over to look at them. And she was asking, what do they mean? And I was like, well, it's in Tibetan. I don't really know, but it's their prayers for healing and for health and well-being. And she said, well, kind of like, what? Do you do that? And I said, well, yes. You know, here's an example of what our Zen center does. And this is not a Zen chant. It's a, a Shingon Dharani. Taigen, maybe you know this, the Jizo Dharani. It's very short. Yes, yeah, some people know it. We've been chanting this we chanted this at Tim Buckley's cremation ceremony. And we chanted this outside. I did with his son just privately. It just happened. 
um, the day, the morning after he had died, his son and I were standing outside by the Jesus statue in his garden. And we started chanting here at the Zen Center, North Shore, we call it um, chanting for total accompaniment. And we chant it before our racial justice meetings on Monday nights. It goes like this. Om ga 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 bi san mai so aka om ga 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 bi san mai so aka om ga 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 bi he so aka om ga 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 bi san mai so aka om ga 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 bi san mai so aka om ga 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 bi san mai so aka chant that for a while and invariably, if I'm doing this outside and there are crows around, you start hearing them. Ka, ka. <laughs> they start chanting with us. And that happened yesterday. There was a crow above. But then the next thing that happened, I looked over and I saw a young man, a white guy, walking toward us with a dog on a leash. And the dog, it was a pit bull, beautiful, young pit bull, um, on the leash. And the dog, so strong, was straining against the leash. It was kind of scary, but as they came closer, I looked over. We kept chanting. We kept chanting. I looked over, and that dog sat right down mm-hmm. and looked right at us and did not move. I could feel this dog feeling this chant. And this chant for me is about connecting its total accompaniment with all being, not just humans, all being. And it's so life-giving and (laughs) life-saving, so reorienting. And I saw that in the dog, and the dog saw that and heard that in us. So beautiful. Anyway, this is what, what I feel when I read Dr. Ward asking us to invoke the ancestors, the human ancestors, the the earth ancestors, maybe the, the most foundational ancestor, Mother Earth. You know, she's here to help us. You know, and I think she's also helping us right now through this massive intervention. So, you know, I think this massive intervention, this wide mind of the Bodhisattva, Suzuki Roshi, I think, saying, even if the sun were to rise in the West, still, still, even if the sun were to rise in the west, the Bodhisattva has only one way. And I think it's up to us to find out what that is and do it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your presence. Thank you for your practice. Please, I'd love to hear from you. I'm going to go on mute. <laughs> so, thank you so much, Joan. So we have time for discussion, questions, comments, responses. So uh, I'll call on people. Uh, You can either raise your hand, for those of you who I can't see, you can go to the participants window, and um, and at the bottom there, there's a a raised hand thing, and uh, Asian has already raised your hand, so Asian, I'll call on you first. Okay. I, can can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you, Joan, for such a wonderful, wonderful talk. And I 
could comment on so many things, but I wanted to especially appreciate how you talked about, you know, making our sangha into a safe space, a safe enough space for us to let down some of our control, to allow ourselves to make mistakes and to ask for forgiveness and to forgive each other and ourselves for these mistakes. I think that one of the, one of the really hardest things, um, maybe for, for white folks like myself to encounter when we're encountering, um, you know, trying to become anti-racist is that the minute we recognize some of these uncomfortable, you know, complicit or, you know, other kinds of feelings in ourselves, we want to move away from them. And we want to immediately focus on, you know, that guy over there who was like way more racist than me. And, um, and, so does that guy over there, you know, <laughs> so, so we can get into a place of, you know, everybody having this like competitive wokeness and everybody has to like, is posturing for like, you know, how woke can I, can I appear? And I think that that is actually, um, it's an understandable phenomenon, but it, but it doesn't help. And sometimes it causes some harm. It just, it perpetuates the status quo. So I, I really loved what you were saying about um, just, you know, acknowledging our, our own complicitness and, and asking for help. And as we get more skillful at doing that, that actually helps our sangha to become more welcoming, both for people who have been oppressed and people who are maybe more heavily entrenched in oppression. So, so our sangha can become a welcoming place where we can all work those things out. So I very much appreciate this. Thank you very much, Aishin. I'm not going to respond to everybody, but I do want to model something. Um, I was talking with the Stone Creek Zen Center a couple weeks ago, and I just want to say there was someone on the call, a man, and I was talking about similar stuff, who said, I just want to say that I, I, I saw some homeless people on the street and I wanted so much to help them, but I noticed I was afraid and I didn't know how to move. I, didn't, I was afraid to get too close to them because I, were, I was afraid they were going to be mad at me. They were going to resent me. <laughs> Um, and I was afraid of that, so I didn't. And I thought that was so beautiful, such a beautiful thing to confess to, because that's where he's going to begin doing the work of working with that fear. All we need to do is just start where we are, as Pema said. <laughs> that's not original to me. Just start right where we are and then just go from there. So a big, big part of that is, you know, the, the, uh, the Buddha said, the four foundations of mindfulness when anger is present, a monk knows, and when anger arises, a monk knows anger is present, period. That's a huge step, being able to admit that this is what's happening right now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ishi. So other comments, responses for, for Joan, oh, please. Yes, Paula, hi. Hi, Joan. Can you hear me okay? Yes. 
Um, Joan, I wanted to ask you, it sounds like you're very much in conversation with a lot of different groups in your community, you yourself and your Sangha. So I wanted to ask you how those relationships were forged in the beginning and if you could speak to some of the difficulties that might have arisen and how the Sangha was able to address those. I know it's kind of a broad question. Before you answer, though, too, I also wanted to thank you. I know um, you're also engaging publicly where I've seen some of the YouTube videos where you've been in public forums with discussion. And I want to thank you for modeling that for, for the rest of us that are Zen practitioners on how to use skillful means and write speech. So I really appreciated that a lot as well. Yes, thank you, Paula. Um, so the robes really help, and being recorded really helps with skillful means. <laughs> I <thought> so. <laughs> believe in the power of the robe the bell you know things like this too because um it's very easy to get very angry and maybe some of those youtube videos you're talking about are some really infuriating conversations uh, with people who are unwilling to admit to admit that racism exists forget about institutionalized racism just any racism because race does not exist so i, I don't really i kind of have started to make the call that that right now I'm not going to continue those kinds of conversations. I don't want to spend my time and energy that way. Um, but I refer other people. There are other people who are up for having those conversations. There's someone in our city, her name's Lauren, who is really into conversation. And it's great. I'm like, talk to Lauren. Because some of the, the people of color, many of them are saying right now, you know what? I don't want to be in a conversation about racism. I'm in a mode of action. I don't want to keep talking about this. So I'm, I'm, I'm choosing where I'm, I'm putting my energy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so foundationally, Paula, this is a beautiful question. The most important thing, I think, that started us in meaningful racial justice work is friendship. One person, her name is Esther, became um, what I called my best friend. She never called me her best friend. And actually, we, we went through a very difficult thing over the summer. But it's all about, you know, being in reality and being like, I was like, well, I call you my best friend. You don't call me your best friend. And one of the things I had to realize was that because I was going into, I want equality here. I think, Esther, I, do you realize I need you as much as you need me? Well, in fact, she needs me a little bit more than I need her. (laughs) I couldn't see her as just a friend. She needs me to be a friend that she can deploy. So it's a little bit more subtle than this. And I'm happy to talk offline a little bit more because it was a really pivotal moment. And, um, and basically asking the question, what is the nature of our relationship? I'm asking that question all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's continually refreshing. I mean, like pressing reset. Um, it's not always refreshing, like it feels good. Like a lot of the time, it's painful. But um, uh, the Jizo chant, okay, we'll get to that in just a second. I think what makes it true and real and authentic is relationship, real relationship, where we're building enough trust 
and love for each other. Like all these walks in the woods are about that. Paula, you know, because you're a body person. Being in the body together yeah. and moving, you know, um, is, and, and, you know, it's taking chances. Like it's just taking chances with each other. I'm bringing them deep in the woods. You know, one of them said, you know, I realized, Joan, at the beginning when we started on this path, you know, with you walking it, I'm like, how well do I really know Joan? Like, where is she leading me? <laughs> so we went through some, some of that together. We got to the other side and that just keeps building trust. And so with that, I have shown Esther and others that I will keep showing up for them. They have changed my life. I am spending more and more time, and it's, it's a delicate, delicate negotiation with our Zen Center, mm-hmm. spending more and more time on racial justice. I go like this because it's just relationship. Right, right. You know, and, and so it's the opposite of what we call uh, crassly tokenism. I'm not trying to get more. Why aren't more black people coming to our Zen Center? That is such a question that's off the mark. What are we doing that would make a black person want to come to our Zen Center? How is this relevant? And can there be kind of a mutuality? Like when I first established the Zen Center in North Shore, the question I had in my mind was how do I uphold something very specific, Soto Zen practice as expressed through Suzuki Roshi and my teachers, Darlene and Blanche, without falling into fundamentalism or dogma? Right. So that, this is the kind of courage and confidence I'm talking about of trusting our process. You know, we're lucky because Zen has always changed. Wherever it landed, it changed. Something about its expression changed according to what it met. And mm-hmm. something also about it did not change. And that's why I keep saying, sit, <laughs> keep sitting. <laughs> that has not changed. And Tygen, I love, I checked the website just before I logged on. I love how you also say to sit Sazen, don't face your screen. You know, you can bow to the camera, but sit kind of diagonally. I think that's really important too. Because I think in the age of Zoom, we can still feel connected, um, but that doesn't mean we're going to be staring into a computer. You know, I I think this is, there's something about that that's really important. Um, I'm aware of the passing of time, Paul. I hope that was the beginning. The most important thing is friendship starting with individuals. Yeah. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. The Jizo Durrani, someone asked, should we, what is the specific question? Yes, David. Thank you so much. Um, uh, a couple of people chatted uh, me privately simply to ask. They were curious to hear the to, to find the source of it. Yeah, and, so, and someone found it on the on the website. Oh, cool. Well, let me give a let me give a shout out then to um, Great Vow Monastery. That's where I first learned it. It was at that SCBA conference that Tygen maybe maybe others were at too several years ago, um, and they led us. Remember that procession across the field to the altar, their shrine of the great Bao shrine out there. And we were all in robes and we all had little handbells <laughs> and we were chanting this together. And it was so powerful. And I noticed that all the young people were into it there and we started chanting it here. And, and it's true. The young people are still into it. It's again, it's not from the Zen tradition, but there is something about it. It has kind of an Aboriginal quality 
that I think is is grounding for our body and, and opens the heart in some way that maybe we don't experience another chance that we do so readily. Yes. Yes. Uh, oh, uh, just to say about the Jizo, oh, uh, sorry. Uh, 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 Eve had her hand up. I'll, I'll just to say about the Jizo chant that there's infor- it, it, it appears in the Jizo chapter of uh, my book, Faces of Compassion. And there's more information about Jizo and what he represents in that chapter. So uh, Eve, go ahead. Well, well, my question was, where is it from? So yeah, it, go, it, it goes, yeah, you can look in the Jizo chapter of Faces of Compassion. It goes way back, and uh, Jizo is the Bodhisattva, actually important Bodhisattva now, and there are various ceremonies that are being, that have been done for, uh, uh, well, Jizo is also the Bodhisattva for women and children and for transitional times like ours. Uh, Jizo is the Bodhisattva who goes to hell and to all the other spaces uh, to take care of beings who are suffering. Yeah, and um, Taigen, so Jizo as the earth store bodhisattva. Right, or the earth well, womb bodhisattva, yeah. Yes, coming from deep within the earth. Is it true, uh, that, would you say that the Shingon tradition, so originated in Japan, does it have kind of what I'm calling aboriginal roots? Well, yeah, and it goes back to China and even India. But, yeah, it, a lot of the, um, the Durrani energy comes from, um, from shamanic uh, traditions in Japan and China. So uh, you were talking about uh, Buddhism changing in different cultures, and uh, it's connected with shamanic con- uh, uh indigenous uh, traditions in every country it's gone to in, in native American traditions and is in this country. So uh, we're for, we in here in Chicago, we are on Potawatomi and Ojibwe ground. So, yes. I love that you brought in the word shamanic. I've been yeah. talking with earthland Zenji manual. Maybe many of you know her. She's about to come out with a new book, the shamanic bones of Zen. Cool. Oh, good. Yeah, and it, so that keep an eye out for that. I'm super excited about it. You know, there is a shamanic quality in th- this Jizo Durrani that I think humans and animals connect with. It's just yeah. fascinating to, to, to experience that. And by the way, I think that's also the experience of walking through the woods, you know, and seeing all these massive rocks and the markings on the rocks. And this little girl was calling them. She was seeing all kinds of shapes in the rocks and, you know, in the trees, and especially certain times of day, the interplay of shadow and light. These realms, I feel like everything is here to help us. You know, if we are there to connect with it, these, you know, engaging the imagination or releasing our grip on the mind that wants to know, you know, that's trying to control opening into this vast mind that's just available for all the magic of the world and all, all the healing of the world that's right here available to us and that we need so deeply. Seeing the shapes in the rocks is like seeing the images in the clouds. So other comments or questions for Joan? We have a little more time. Well, this isn't just for Joan, but I want to know, can we learn the chant on, on October the 4th? Well, uh, is Asian still here? Uh, 
uh, that's up to Asian for, and we'll announce, we'll announce about that in the announcements, the October 4th event. Anyway, thank you. Other responses, questions, comments, uh, while Joan is here. Or complaints, as Kaz would say. Yes, complaints. Are there, are complaints there any for complaints? Joan. Yeah, Compl- <laughs> I'm up for complaints. <laughs> Let's keep it real, man. <laughs> well, I'm Jewish. I'm always up for complaints. So, but, but anyway, thank you very much. I actually didn't have any. I like the fight, fight, flight, um, freeze face. Eileen, did you have a comment? I saw your. I can't hear you. Maybe not. Nobody has anything else to say. <laughs> What's some other stuff to say? But... Oh, hey, David, David Ray. Yes. I can't raise my hand because I'm the Zoom host. It's there. I don't have that function. <laughs> Um, Joan, I really just wanted to to thank you uh, on for, for for so many things. So I'm I'm new to I'm new to the practice. I started coming around in in January. Reiki, shamanic practice, other other stuff are are in my my journey. And just when I thought I couldn't more have this feeling that I'm so glad that I'm here and that I'm in the right place. Thank you so much for you know just ripping open the door of my heart today. And, and say, you know, connecting to things that, that, that matter to me, like you, you, you mentioned the shadow, you mentioned chakras, you mentioned sh- uh, shamanic practice. Um, well, you mentioned the crows. I mean, I love it. Kaka is the Sanskrit word for crow, and I just love it. It's, it's as though crows know their name in Sanskrit. That's so gorgeous. Um, but anyway, just thank you. Thank you. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so moved by your talk. Thank you. You're welcome, David. Thank you very much. Uh, what a delight. Uh, Paul Sama, Paul Disco. <laughs> Hi. I'm curious how you're doing. Um, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm very happy to meet a, uh, a sister I didn't know I had. Um, uh, Blanche. Blanche is somebody. I, I worked for Blanche and, and Lou when I was 14 as their yard boy. And Darlene and I were born on the same day, so. We have many karmic connections, and uh, I didn't want to take up big space time to say thank you and hello, but uh, I, since you brought it up, <laughs> thank you very much, and, and good to meet you. Thank you, Paul. That's so gracious. You know, I one of the things I always loved during my training at Tassajara is when the old-timers would come by. You know, people who had practiced with Suzuki Roshi, studied with him, you know, when you would come visit um, and during the summers, it was really so validating and confirming and exciting and all that. One thing I just want to share, since you invoked uh, Lou, Blanche and Lou, uh, they're on my altar up here. I was very, very close with Lou. And I remember, I've thought about this quite a bit. I remember at a certain point after I'd been at Tassahara for a while, they came to visit Blanche. Was It must have been the summer or something. And I remember... Lou used to get so infuriated with me. I remember at one point when I was saying goodbye to them, I said, Blanche, thank you so much for your patience with me. And Lou, thank you so much for your impatience with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
it was so wonderful to have them both as teachers, you know, coming to the same thing with a very different vibe. So thank you for bringing them into the, the Zoom room. Nobody has any complaints or objections to anything I said. You know, I, I felt that some of the things I was saying was a little, might have been confrontational for some people. Um, and I don't mean to, I'm not looking for a fight. I am just looking. To, <laughs> <laughs> although I have been called by <laughs> Oh, what did I, uh, something anyway, fired off earlier, but I forgot what it was about feisty. Um, I do think, you know, that one of the things I value about our practice is doubt, our doubt and our skepticism, you know, that we're not converts here. We're not just, um, I remember I grew up in a Catholic situation. My family was Catholic. And I remember once being at St. John's Church in the balcony and looking out over the congregation of, of uh, people in this church. And they all looked like baby birds, like waiting to be fed, you know. And I remember thinking like, mm. you know, I just value our dharmic inquiry. And I, because I know that sanghas are struggling with how to, one of the things I'm struggling with is how to meet the reality of this moment. You know, like the, the, um, the thought that if we are headed toward a coup, now is the time to start talking about it. How do we recognize if it's a coup? You know, what are we going to do if there is a coup? What is the role of the Bodhisattva? I just want to share with you that with our board president, he is, he both, he's a lawyer. He worked with the Department of Defense and he also worked with the Human Rights Watch. So I trust him completely. And he and I talk about these things a lot. I haven't even talked with my own sangha about this yet, but we're talking about this. You know, what are we going to do in the coming weeks? Like, what should we start doing now? What conversations do we need to start having? And I said to him, Clint, I just want you to know, no matter what, the schedule will continue. <laughs> we'll still have daily zazen. It's still going to happen on Zoom. You know, I think that's extremely important, even if we're taking to the streets. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. But for me, the challenge as a priest, you know, and as a sangha leader, I'm being very intimate with you right now, is how to be in reality of how bad the situation is, naming it without whipping people into hysteria and how to, um, you know, and then also without falling into some kind of bypassing, you know? And I, so I think it's back to that question of control. So here's something. And Paul, you must've known Tim Buckley. Zenji yes. Tim Buckley. Yeah. Yes, listen, listen to this story. When Tim died, Boy, I'm really invoking Tim today. I was there. Um, I, I became very close with Tim. He had a, a sangha up in Maine. And he, even though he had studied with Suzuki Roshi, he didn't feel he had been trained. As he, Suzuki Roshi wanted to ordain him, and Tim said no. Tim felt that he needed to go start a family and, you know, do manly things like, you know, get a job and all that. And so he never had priest training. And so he was asking me to help him with what we call priestcraft, you know, how to approach the altar and all that kind of stuff. And so 
I, I became very close to Tim. I gave talks up there. He gave talks down here. And then he asked me in his final year to help him prepare for his death. He received Dharma transmission from, um, oh, why am I, uh, Peter, Peter Schneider. Oh. Um, before dying, that was one of his wishes. So he, I on this coast and Vicki Austin on the West Coast helped him with those ceremonies. And then um, we also planned his, all of his ceremonies um, after death, you know, leading up to death, the, t- the moment of death, um, the three days after death, um, the 49 days after death, and then the year after death. And so I was part of that process. I was with him and his wife, Joran, on up until Tuesday morning, and then I had to go back to my own sangha the week that he died. He ended up dying on that Thursday. So I wasn't there when he died. His wife called me right away, and I drove up there, and then we sat with his body for three days. So that night um, that Tim had died, several of us were assembled in the house, Tim's body, Tim was in the back room and we were sitting with his body for the three days. And in the front of the house is the kitchen and we were cooking food and we were eating. We were laughing. We were enjoying being together. And then, you know, we were taking turns, some of us going to the back of the house and sitting in silence with Tim. Well, Jeff Broadbent was on his way from Minnesota to be with Tim and he arrived too late. He got there. I was there when he arrived and he knocked on the front door. We opened the door. He realized that he was too late. You know, and I don't believe that it was too late and maybe you won't either. And I don't think he does now given what happened. But at any rate, at that moment, he felt like it was too late. He went immediately to the back room to sit with Tim. And for the next hour, we just heard him cry piteously. He was just like, like David, kind of what you said a little bit, but multiplied by a million, his heart was ripped open. And in that ripped open state, I think Tim just came right in. Because what happened that night was Jeff had a dream about Tim. And I was the first person to hear about this because the next morning I was sitting in the kitchen and Jeff was sleeping in the room downstairs, which, by the way, was the Russian River Zendo. It was downstairs, and that's where where Jeff slept. Jeff walked up the stairs. It was very early in the morning, and I saw the look on his face, and he said, I just had this incredible dream. Tim, it was like Tim was right here. His eyes were blue-green with golden flecks. And... And, um, and it was, he was just, it was just like he was right there. And I said to him, and I later congratulated him on having the presence of mind to ask this great question. So what's it like? (laughs) (laughs) And Tim said, and this is what I, I wanted to share. Tim said, um, there is another power but we do have some agency. You know, we're not really in control and we're right here and we have vow power 
maybe you could call it. There is something here that I think there's a part of us that knows this every time we sit down on this cushion over and over. So maybe that's what I'm feeling these days, what I want to share and how to meet these extraordinary times, these terrifying times where everything is so tenuous, everything that we value is so tenuous. We're not in control. There is another power and we have total agency. Not total. We have a lot of agency. We have powerful agency. Paul. Um, Am I on? Yes, Yes, you you are. Um, I think that would be a fascinating thing to explore. Uh, uh, I know Ed Brown, uh, Tim Buckley, uh, Jeff Broadbent, uh, Cobancino. These are all people I know that were very close to another realm, a larger realm, a realm that we don't normally inhabit, are, are and were. And I think that would be something that we don't talk much about in, in our practice. And I think that would be something very interesting to think about and understand, especially when the realm that we're in now um, is looking a little ragged. And the idea of there being more worlds, <clears throat> parallel universes, more worlds, I don't know what to call it, but definitely other other realms to be in touch with. I have no... No answers, no understanding, but just total fascination. Spoken like someone born on Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Where the veil is thin. That was the thing about Darlene. I I love that she was born on Halloween. And Paul, I love knowing now that you were too. (laughs) Thank you. Same year. Same year too. Many of the same afflictions also. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, just... Maybe in closing, um, well, for people who don't know, Tim Buckley, uh, after being at Tassajara, became a scholar of Native American traditions. So he was close to other realms. I, I want to, and I, just in closing, I just appreciate so much your being here, Joan, and everything you brought us, and so much. Um, and, and I wanted to say something about your mentioning that word coup and the difficult time we're in and just that I have this trust in our practice in Zazen and um, something that was said at the SCBA a conference that all of us as long for however long you've been practicing uh, these times are what we've been practicing for and we have our practice gives us some steadiness and resilience and um, that we can, that the schedule or, you know, this practice will continue, whatever happens, and that we need to pay attention to what is happening and uh, try to respond appropriately, whatever that may mean for each of us. And this is, uh, and to, to know that this is a difficult time and, we are not in control, and nobody is in control, uh, actually. And that's maybe a good thing. And so, anyway, we will continue. And thank you, Joan, for all you've given us. 
this morning. So we will um, close with a chant that David Ray will lead us in, and then there'll be announcements. Thank you so much, Jim. So everyone, uh, by your leave, I will mute everyone. And though we cannot hear each other, we are all chanting in unison. Song of the grass hut. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In ten feet square, an old man illumines forms and their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present. Not dwelling south or north, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines. Jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus this mountain monk doesn't understand at all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions. Find grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true wisdom, with full awareness of the song of the grass. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. Through the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, 
and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.